Our gospel reading this morning is out of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to be reading the first 17 verses of chapter 1. Let us hear the gospel. Glory to thee, O Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation, to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiod, and Abiod the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. <laughs> Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Have a seat. You've been very patient. Allow me to pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. How many of you have ever tried to read the Bible straight through from beginning to end? Whew. Yeah. How many of you actually did it? Like actually finished it, doing it that way, starting with Genesis, plowing through. Okay, that's a much smaller number than the uh, ones attempting it. Right? How many of you did that on tape and how many of you did it for real? <laughs> uh, what are the hardest parts to read? Genealogies. Genealogies, yeah. And why? Because you can't pronounce most of it and because you don't know who most of them are, right? And after a while, it's just names, and you, you hit that kind of stuff a lot in the Old Testament. So that's why most of those straight-through-the-Bible uh, plans tend to get bogged down sometime by numbers, right? Um, Phil asked me earlier this week, he asked me what's the passage I'm covering, and I told him I'm going to do these first 17 verses of Matthew. And he says, what in the heck are you going to glean from that? And uh, he's like, you know, it took me half an hour just to read them. And, you know, that obviously was Phil being facetious, because if it literally took 30 minutes to read it, I could have just said amen and we'd be done, right? We could just go home. Um, some of you might be wishing I would do that. Um, but I told Phil, well, I, I like a challenge. Uh, but, you know, I will admit genealogies are not the easiest material. They don't exactly have a storybook vibe to them, um, 
they kind of feel like data without so much information, if that makes sense. Um, it's not a lot of narrative to it. And, and I can't even blame the lectionary this time because I chose this passage. The lectionary is careful to avoid genealogies for the most part. But I, I will partially blame the lectionary uh, because they wanted us, uh, the original assignment was to read the nativity story of Matthew today. And I frankly feel like that's a little premature. Um, that's kind of like the, you know, the department store approach to the holiday. You know, They have the Christmas stuff out like no later than Halloween. I don't know about you. I like my Christmas music to start after Thanksgiving. And I like my nativity readings to wait until Christmas Eve at the earliest. So I knew I had to pick a different reading. But why the genealogy? I could have picked any number of passages. I chose a list of names. Why? Well, the primary reason for that is that that's what Matthew chose. It's not me, Matthew, but the other guy, whose name is at the top of the page, right? <laughs> when Matthew, also known as Levi, sits down to tell the story of Jesus, he doesn't start with the wedding of Joseph and Mary or the visitation of Mary or anything like that. He starts with a genealogy, with a list of names. There has to be an important reason for that, and we do believe that Scripture is indeed God-breathed. It's all profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, right? So that has to be true somehow, even for a list of names. And because of the way these books were organized, this is providentially, these are the first words of the New Testament, right? This is our introduction to the rest of the story. Uh, and, and it's the first thing, apparently, we need to know before we hear anything else, at least according to Matthew. And... I'll admit, none of the other gospel writers start this way. In fact, not every gospel writer includes any genealogy at all. Uh, only Luke includes, uh, includes one, and he includes, you know, he's a detailed man, Luke. We talked about that when we were going through Acts, right? He's a very uh, thorough historian. He likes to go into the details. But Luke, as a storyteller, knows that starting with the genealogy might not be the way to go. It's not a strong enough hook, so to speak, right? So he buries it further in at the end of chapter 3 in Luke waits till after Jesus is born and Jesus has grown up. He even waits till after Jesus' baptism. Um, in other words, Luke treats the genealogy more like we would, as a footnote somewhere later on. And again, Mark and John don't include one at all. But Matthew, for some reason, thinks this is a good opening, a critical piece of the picture. In fact, as I pointed out a few weeks ago when we were looking at the Great Commission... In some ways, Matthew basically tells us right up front that the genealogy is kind of the point, right? What does he say in verse 1? This is the, it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what I've set out to write. That's what this book is about. In Matthew's mind, he's writing a genealogy with a lot of details thrown in later. I mean, so that's the title. It's not a great title, maybe, but, you know, that's what he gives it. And so the whole book is about the family of Jesus, in a sense, it's not just the life and adventures of Jesus. It's more like a family photo album. At least that's how it's introduced. We have a movie at home called The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. Ranks right up there with Santa Claus Conquers the Martians and family classics. Um, <laughs> but the title at least sounds exciting, right? Life and Adventures has a sort of promising ring to it. But Matthew opts instead for this The Book of the Genealogy of Jesus uh, uh, approach. And he starts right in with this list of names that most of us would tend to skip. This is not exactly John Grisham, you know, type material here. 
And honestly, I don't typically read the preface and introductions even to modern books, right? It usually ruins the experience. They give something away. And, but then you think like, well, back then, parchment wasn't exactly cheap. Therefore, you have to assume Matthew thinks this is very important. Uh, you know, it's just not what most people would start with. But I think to myself, like, family albums, family histories are often like this, aren't they? Um, I have a document at home that my mother gave us. It's, it's typewritten. Uh, it's the story of my great-great-great-something grandmother, Anna Lundeen, who was uh, uh, something of a pioneer girl. She led a very interesting life, uh, very similar in some ways respects, uh, a lot of adventures kind of like reading about Laura Ingalls. Uh, the difference is that she couldn't write like Laura Ingalls, and that's why we're not living off the royalties of our own TV show starring Michael Landon. But... <laughs> I still find it interesting. Uh, Grace has been trying to, you know, at least get it into a, a digitized format for us. But um, it's not James Michener exactly, but it doesn't feel like a stale list of events to me in the same way. Why? Because it's my family, right? Uh, when I look up birth and death records on those weird ancestry sites, and I've done that. They're all run by the Mormons, by the way. It's very strange, but they've got their own weird reasons. But... When I look those things up, it doesn't feel like an endless list of names because I have a connection with these people, right? They're my people. I, I share their blood and, and probably some of their personality quirks. Like their story is my story, right? Even if their story is something I can only guess at based on like where they lived and what years, right? In other words, genealogies are only boring if they have nothing to do with us. Lists of names are only irrelevant if we have no connection or reason to care. But this here list is a representation. This is Jesus' family. And as his brothers and sisters, in some sense, this is our family too, I guess. And, and these verses are not here because Matthew is a bad writer. He's making a point. And Matthew starts this way in part because his audience, his original audience, is Jews, the people of Israel. We've observed before that his gospel is sort of the most Jewish gospel. And so he's locating Jesus in the context of Jewish history. He's showing how Jesus' story is a part of their story. And he's pointing out that Jesus' family tree looks a lot like all of their family tree, right? And that's a contrast from Luke's genealogy. Luke's genealogy is much more straightforward and orderly. It goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, not just Abraham. And he does that because he's addressing a Greek-speaking audience. So he tells the story of Jesus in the context of sort of all of human history. Matthew tells it in the context of Jewish history. And thankfully, this genealogy, believe it or not, is actually one of the easier ones to read in Scripture. Uh, one reason being that many of these names are actually familiar to us, right? Uh, if we've read our Old Testament, if we grew up going to Sunday school, uh, then many of us know these stories. We've read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. Like, we know these characters, right? And some of the other names, they're less familiar, but they might ring a bell at least. Uh, so at least these names aren't all completely strange. Of course, there's a lot of stories represented in these names. We're not going to get into all of that today. Uh, as we walk down memory lane, I have 30 minutes. I'm not going to rehash the whole bloodline. But as we're approaching here the end of Advent, and the fact that this, this list, this genealogy is here, is meant to tell us something about Jesus and something, I think, that can help us as we're learning to wait on him, right? 
I'd like to trace a few themes in it, things that we can learn about Jesus' family tree that might help us to welcome him, because that's, that's the point. That's what we've been trying to get at. Uh, we've been talking about welcoming Jesus, and that's why these gospel accounts are written. And Matthew is trying to introduce people to Jesus. That's the reason he would write this book. He's trying to prepare people to welcome him, right? And this is how he starts. And that must mean that Matthew's convinced that this list of names will help us to welcome Jesus better. Okay, how? How can a list of names help us welcome Jesus? Well, again, this particular list of names is, is tailored to a Jewish audience, and maybe being reminded of how Jewish Jesus was would help them relate to him. That's definitely, I think, part of it. But whether we are Jews or not, I think that what, G what Matthew is getting at is that welcoming starts with remembering. The whole passage is an appeal to remember to reflect on what had happened so far for Jesus to get here to this point. Remembering is an important part of anticipation. I don't know how many of you think about that. It sounds backwards because it sounds like you have to look back to look forward or something, right? But we know that that's true in a sense. We can kind of feel it, and, and we see it especially at Christmas. Um, nostalgia and anticipation, they go hand in hand a lot, don't they? You can't fully appreciate what's coming unless you know what already happened. If any of you have ever walked into the middle of a movie, you won't appreciate the surprise ending, right? If you walk in in the middle, it's hard to appreciate just watching the end of a movie. Now, there are exceptions to that rule. On Friday, some of us were here watching Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. I'm pretty sure that you could have walked in at any point of that film and done no violence to the plot whatsoever. <laughs> um, there's not exactly a building tension. There's no grand surprise or anything like that. Um, but it's different with good movies, right? Um, 20 years ago, I, I walked into my parents' living room accidentally uh, and watched the last five minutes of The Sixth Sense. <laughs> Clever me. I'll never be able to enjoy it now. It's ruined forever, right? I can't recapture the magic. By walking in at the end, I hadn't been on the emotional roller coaster up to that point. So not only did it not like shock me, it's just like I, like I don't even care. I don't know, right? The ending is meaningless. If I had seen anything before, I could have remembered something that would have given context. It might affect how I feel about the end. And likewise, you can't properly enjoy a Star Wars movie, right? What, is, what, what do they all start with? They start with this preamble floating off into the ether, right, into, into the galaxy, right? And you read this thing, and it sets the tone. It reminds you what happened in the previous episode, and it helps you remember, so you have a context going forward for why this ship is being shot and followed around and that kind of thing, right? So what, Matthew, what does Matthew want us to remember? Well, like I said, first and most obvious, he's trying to let us know and remind us and help us remember that Jesus is actually Jewish. So he starts his genealogy with Abraham. That's not arbitrary because Abraham really is the beginning of Jewish history because there was no Jewish nation before that time. Jews were not a thing, right? Uh, Abraham was a Chaldean, and he was called by God and set apart. So the family tree starts with that seed. And Matthew is able to trace a fairly direct line down to the present day. Some individuals get mixed, uh, missed in there. Uh, but the line is clear enough. So, so Matthew was affirming that Jesus is their fellow countryman. But there's another reason to start with Abraham. And that's because it was to Abraham that God had promised to bless the world through his offspring. In Genesis 22, God told Abraham that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. Matthew is setting 
Jesus up, Jesus' arrival as the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is going to fulfill Israel's grand purpose. Jesus has come to be the blessing that God promised. So Matthew wants us to remember the promises, to remember the covenant with Abraham and to reflect on God's faithfulness to his promises. But it sure seems like Matthew also wants to remind us that the road was bumpy at times. He could have just mentioned that, you know, well, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and left it at that. Um, God may have been faithful, uh, but much of this list is a reflection that God's people are not We see some obvious heroes of the faith listed here, but if we know our Old Testament, and Matthew's original audience certainly did, uh, then we can't help but remember some lowlights along with the highlights, right? So Abraham, for instance, slept with his wife's servant when God didn't immediately give him a son. That may have contributed to some domestic quarreling in his life. Jacob cheated his brother out of his birthright and was kind of a sneaky character generally. Perez, <laughs> yeah, he was not, he's not a great character either. Uh, J- Judah was involved in, 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 in uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting things mixed up a little bit. One of these guys, one of them sold Joseph into slavery. Which one was that, John? <laughs> Judah, Judah. Judah sells his brother into slavery. That's right, one of the 12. So not a great guy. If you remember, I mean, when you've read Genesis, Joseph is the hero of many of those old stories, right? So much of it's about Joseph. And uh, yet, you know, and Judah's one of the bad guys in much of Genesis. And yet here he is in the list, and, you know, Joseph gets bypassed, which is kind of odd. Uh, David is a great king, but we know he had a wandering eye. Solomon may have been wise in many ways, but not so much when it came to domestic bliss. I mean, he had so many wives, it would be a surprise if he wasn't related to Jesus somehow. Rehoboam, his son, was a terrible king who caused the kingdom of Israel to split. And many of the names that come after that are are, are Judah's kings, and their record's not exactly stellar. Very mixed, right? Uh, Starting with Abijah, you know, Abijah says right in Kings, walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. And then, like, Asaph is okay. Jehoshaphat's pretty good. Uh, Then Joram comes, like, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then you skip a few names, uh, and, and then Uzziah, he was okay. Jotham's pretty good. Then Ahaz comes, and it's like, what does it say? He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel. Then you have Hezekiah. He's a good king. And then his son comes along, Manasseh. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal. He burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then his son Amos. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Josiah, very good king. Skip a few. Jeconiah, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like, you start to see a a little bit of a vibe here that, like, these guys are not all great. And by the time we get to Shealtiel, God has had enough, and he sends Judah into exile. So, honestly, this entire bloodline of men is something of a train wreck with, like, short-lived highlights. You get those, right? And then enough low points to make you question the whole thing and wonder if any of this is even salvageable at this point. Like the history of God's chosen people 
is a history of syncretism, rebellion, child sacrifice, wicked rulers, all the way down, kind of punctuated by some exceptional guys. And even the exceptions usually have an asterisk somewhere in the record. Like, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he didn't destroy the Asherah poles. He screwed up this thing. He did this other thing. He could have done more. Josiah is regarded as a great king, but the author of Chronicles says that he basically died because he defied all sense and all logic by launching a war against Egypt that he couldn't possibly win. And even some of the best kings end up handing the throne to sons who are so wicked that they basically in a short time undo every little good thing that their father was able to accomplish in his lifetime. But what I take from all this is that Matthew wants us to remember the good and the bad. History is not a straight line. Human history is marred by sin and it is always bumpy and it is always rough. There's no such thing as a straight line. All these famous names have an awful lot of embarrassing details under the surface. And maybe it looks like just a list of names at first glance for us as, you know, Americans, but any good Jew at this time would know just how mixed this group was. They didn't have to be reminded. It's not just a hall of fame, it's also a hall of shame. And Matthew wants us to remember that. Now that's just the names we know and have records of. Uh, there's another notable thing about this list, and that's the names we don't know. I mean, the patriarchs, they're well-known figures, of course. They still are. We're still naming our kids after them, right? Jacob. Uh, the kings were pretty well-known to a good Jew if he knew his political history, but then Matthew rattles off a whole bunch of obscure names that are recorded nowhere else that I know of. Like, how much do you know about Eliud <laughs> or Mathen? Of course not, any more than you could name my great-grandfather, right? These names are starting to get into the range of people that Joseph himself probably met at family parties and reunions, you know. But that's kind of the point. Like, we can't even say what kind of men these were. All we know is that they are obscure and essentially forgotten, except that they're not forgotten by God. And we're right to remember them, if only today, if only when we're looking at this thing. Because all of us have a limited knowledge of our family history, but every one of our forefathers are part of why we're here. And it's not for nothing that God tells us to honor our parents. That doesn't stop, and it's not limited to just one generation. Of course, these men at the bottom of the list are not famous. We don't, we don't know anything about them, and we, we won't know much more till eternity, right? But the fact is that the more obscure the names get, the more you realize that the family prestige has faded almost entirely. Like, their forefathers were kings, but Joseph is here swinging a hammer in Nazareth. Like the mighty have fallen awfully low. Now I can relate to that a little bit. I, I've mentioned before you know, that, I, that I've spent some time on these ancestry sites, and I, I spent enough time on there at one point to figure out that I'm descended, apparently, through one line, uh, from an, a line of earls in Scotland. And from there, you can branch out, and eventually you'll find, like, Robert the Bruce, several English kings, a few French knights, and, like, you know what that gets me? Nothing. <laughs> no one cares, and some people won't believe it, and I'm not even sure I do, honestly. Um, and I'm thinking that's how Joseph probably feels about his family tree, too. It all feels a little esoteric at this point. This is all just, like, forgotten glory. Rumors, almost. But how gracious of God to include even like his father and grandfather in here as if they're celebrities, right? 
normal men who, who lived and married and had a few kids and died in obscurity, yet here they are mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. And I think in that sense Matthew is telling us that it's good to also remember the little people. These men weren't necessary for God's plan, but he included them anyway, and that alone makes them worthy of remembering. But there's another surprising and scandalous thing about this genealogy, though. You may have noticed it. Matthew does something very strange here because he mentions several women. Now, I've heard it said that modern Judaism is a maternalistic thing, and you know, as in that the faith gets handed down from, from, through mothers. I think that must be a modern spin on things because ancient Israel made no such distinction. But this is quite unique here because I can't think of any other genealogy that mentions mothers anywhere in Scripture. I mean, not even Luke mentions them. You know, this is a paternalistic world that Matthew was writing in, yet he name drops four women, basically. And moreover, he doesn't exactly highlight the women who were uncontroversial heroes, did he? Like, most girls would not want to be in a list like this. You know, like, if that's what it takes, like, nah, that's all right. You can leave me, uh, leave me obscure. But Matthew goes out of his way to highlight the scandals. These women are known mostly for their sketchy, shall we say, relationships, right? So Tamar, she's a mother of Perez by Judah. The story's a little more complicated than it makes it sound here, isn't it? Uh, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. That's not good. She dressed up as a prostitute and seduced him secretly, all to teach him a lesson for withholding his younger son from her when her first husband died. And Perez was a product of a rather twisted one-night stand. Rahab was Boaz's mother, but she was a prostitute long before that and a Canaanite to boot. Ruth is a noble character, but she was a foreigner from Moab. And meanwhile, Matthew doesn't even name Bathsheba, does he? He chooses instead to refer to her as the wife of Uriah, like rubbing it in. You know, the one David had the affair with and had the husband killed. Like, he actually names her by the scandal. <coughs> Matthew doesn't sugarcoat the history, does he? He brings these women up not because he's a proto-feminist, but to emphasize the mess. He's reminding his readers of all the scandalous relationships. You, you have an affair, you have interracial marriages, uh, interfaith marriages in, in some cases, right? Prostitution, one-night stands, right? Like, why would Matthew do that? I think partly he wants us to remember that there are women in the story. We all have mothers, right? But he's also reminding us that scandal is nothing new to the royal line. Matthew is writing this at a time when the slander, especially among Jews, would have been against Jesus, that he was an illegitimate child. It's a rumor that probably would have started in his youth. But Matthew includes these women to remind his readers that those accusations are not new. The royal family of Israel has always had some scandal attached to it. It's no different than the British royal family today. In fact, part of the reason why I think the book of Ruth was written was probably to defend King David from similar slander in his day because there were whisperings that he was part Moabite, partly foreign, not a legitimate king. 
And I think the book is designed in part to restore his great-great-grandmother Ruth to the honor that she deserved. So Matthew is saying, remember the mothers, but also remember the scandals. Don't gloss over it. Because God has always included some measure of scandal in the story. He folds it in. So don't sugarcoat the story. Remember it, warts and all. All right. So Matthew wants us to remember the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Remember the promises. Remember the good guys. Remember the bad guys. Remember even the little guys. Remember the women. Remember even the scandals. Remember all of it. Let your mind soak it all in. And when you've done that, you'll be more ready to welcome Jesus. An obvious question starts rolling around in my mind here, though. I can kind of understand why it's good to, to, to know this history. And I can understand why remembering the story will help us appreciate why we need Jesus to come at all, right? Like the entire story of Israel and Judah testifies to the need of a savior, right? But what confuses me about Matthew's family tree, and Luke does the same thing, mind you, is that he ends it with Joseph. The guy who everyone assumes is Jesus' father, but is not biologically so. That's odd for obvious reasons. Uh, if Joseph is not the biological father, it seems to me like it kind of asks the question, like, isn't all of this sort of moot? If this isn't Jesus' actual family tree, biologically speaking, why does it matter? Why list all these names only to have it terminate with Joseph, the adoptive father? Now, I have read theologians that have made the case, and I think it's convincing enough, that this genealogy is probably nearly the same as Mary's anyway. Uh, marriages tended to be uh, tighter within the family. It was very common to marry a distant cousin of some sort. It was not an unlikely thing. They probably have a similar lineage. They're from the same town. So it's fair to say that Mary probably has royal blood too. But that's not how Matthew chooses to present it. He could have, but he doesn't. Instead, he traces the line to Joseph. And that's because the royal line was preserved through male descendants. So he presents the genealogy from male to male, evenly dividing these epochs into groups of 14, right? He goes from Abraham to David to the exile to Joseph. And we get this image of a sort of bell curve, right, that, that, that went from Abraham's promise to a sort of glorious peak of the promise a little bit with, with King David, down to the miserable depths of exile, and from exile down into like further, into like sort of obscurity, the anonymous obscurity of a carpenter's workshop in Nazareth, a small town in Galilee. All of this long, sordid history comes down to Joseph. That's not a story that we would tell because it feels far too random. If we were writing this story, we might have sent, well, we would have done a lot of things differently. I mean, part of me wonders, I read these things, I'm like, why didn't he just send a savior like immediately, like one of Seth's sons or something? Like, why not just, you know, start earlier than God did? He could have chosen a holier people, you would think, somewhere. And he... We certainly could have traced the lineage to Mary instead of her husband. Like, what does this genealogy and Matthew's way of telling this, what does it ultimately tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about the way God works? And the more I thought about it, 
the more I think it ends with the adoptive father because adoption is more important than we think. Joseph's adoption of Jesus is legally binding. And the biological situation is almost irrelevant to the issue. Joseph is Jesus' legal father, and if he has a legacy to pass on, Jesus inherits it. And it struck me about this passage, and it didn't strike me really till last night, that while Joseph adopted Jesus, it is just as true that Jesus adopted Joseph. In other words, Jesus chose this lineage. He chose this family. He didn't choose a lineage of perfect people. Instead, he looks at this whole messed up, scandalous family tree and he says, yep, those are my people. And he planned this from before the creation of the world. It's a shocking thing. The point of this genealogy is not this list of names, really. It's that you're supposed to get a picture of what God has been doing and what he has done. And as we come to the end of Advent, we know that welcoming Jesus is our duty. But what this genealogy shows is that God will get the job done. That's the encouraging thing. This is his story, and he's been rolling out this red carpet for thousands of years. And when God's people seem to be the least ready to have fallen so far into obscurity, God looks at that and says the timing's perfect. Now we're ready. And he sends his son to a defeated nation where the descendants of the kings now do physical labor to pay the bills, including the taxes to the Romans. In other words, in spite of thousands of years to prepare, the red carpet wasn't very impressive, but Jesus came anyway. And that's the lesson for us, is that Jesus' coming doesn't depend on us. He comes when we seem least prepared and when we least expect it. And he comes to a people who can't seem to get their act together. He adopts a people, and in the process, he inherits the throne and the promises, but none of the baggage, none of the sinful DNA. And now, because of that, we who have trusted Christ have also been adopted by the Father, and his family tree is now our family tree with all the highlights and the lowlights, and he does not despise us for the messiness. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of Savior I need. And I think he's worth welcoming, even if we don't feel particularly ready for him. So to echo what we've been talking about, let's stay awake, let's repent, Let's be patient, but let's also remember. Remember what God has already done, and remember that Jesus is coming whether the red carpet is clean or not, and whether we're awake or not, or if our house is still cluttered, and even if we get impatient, we have to remember that he is coming back for us. And if this messy family tree didn't stop him, neither can we. And that's good news, amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that you are such a wonderful storyteller. And Lord, I read these things and Lord, it is exciting to think that one day we will hear all of these stories of exactly what kind of lives these men led and the way that you were at work in even these obscure details of history, Lord. Not one of these stories is forgotten by you. And we thank you that 
Jesus' family tree has grown much bigger than anything we can even begin to comprehend. Lord, we thank you for sending him. We thank you for sending him to a fallen and messy and scandalous people. We thank you that he lived and died to save scandalous people like us. Help us to rejoice in that, Lord. Help us to welcome Jesus and to look forward to his return. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.